Every single day for the last 15 years of my life, I had a goal and I was able to tangibly work towards it day in and day out. And all of my decisions were guided by the idea that I wanted to achieve this goal. There's not many other things that are happening in the world or in my life where that exists. I have goals like in relationships. I know I'll have goals in my new work life and long-term bucket list things that I want to cross off, but not necessarily things that every single day I'm seeing that input and output to the amount of effort that I'm giving towards it. I think that's just really unique to track and field and running. I don't think that even basketball players have that same experience. What's up, everyone? That was Kyle Merber. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Kyle, like last week's guest, Andrew Bumblow, is a recently retired professional athlete. He spent his pro career training and racing with the New Jersey New York Track Club and coach Frank Gagliano, where he put up personal bests of 334 in the 1500 and 352 for the mile. We really didn't spend any time talking about Kyle's races or highs and lows in the sport or how he got his start in running. Instead, we dug into what it's been like moving on from running in a professional capacity, and he opened up and gave his honest reflections of what he experienced as an athlete. We talked about coverage of the sport, whether or not we need to bring new fans into the mix, how he plans to stay involved now that he's no longer competing at an elite level, and a lot more. A big thank you to Tracksmith for their continued support of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of running. They recently released their spring collection full of stylish gear perfected for the pursuit of personal excellence. It's designed for running hard and logging miles as the season shifts. My favorite piece from this latest collection is the Reggie Half Tight with a built-in liner, folks. They also have a non-lined version of this piece, but I'm telling you, once you go lined, you will never go back. At least I won't anyway. They're perfect for these cool spring mornings, and I love wearing them for track workouts when it's time to run fast. Right now, Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. Just use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out at Tracksmith.com. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. What can I say about Gooder sunglasses other than that they are just the best? I've been wearing them for the past few years, and not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. And did I mention they're the most affordable performance shades on the planet, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. There's also a nice range of styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And yes, those are just a couple of the recklessly fun names that they have in their collection. So, if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of gooders, head over to gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout to take advantage of a great deal. 13% off your order. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O and get 13% off your order. Look good, run gooder. 
One quick note before we get into this one. I had some microphone issues for the first two-thirds of the show, so my apologies that the audio isn't as crisp as usual. It's plenty good enough, however, so without further ado, let's get right into it with the always entertaining Kyle Merber. Welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you. We are filming this, or I guess recording this in the afternoon now. <laughs> the public should know that. So if the coffee wears off like late in the conversation, that's uh, that's why. I know. We're getting close to my regularly scheduled afternoon nap. All right. You're still keeping that going, even though you're not a professional athlete anymore. I, yeah, it's a lifestyle choice, although I will probably have to make some adjustments here very soon. Yeah, you are, as of this conversation, starting a new job pretty soon. I am. It was an absolute journey to figure this whole thing out and to get to the point where I'm supposed to be starting a real-life job next week. We'll have health insurance and a 401k and things I never knew were possible for me to be included (laughs) in. What? will the job entail? What will you be doing as much as you can tell us about it? Yeah. Well, um, it's not in running, which, you know, I will, I think is an important discussion in the sense of like how we got to where I am today, because I've had many, many hours of runs alone, you know, the last year in which I've dissected every aspect of my life and like where my brain is at to arrive at this point where I am today. But uh, I'll I'll be working for American Express. I'll be doing marketing and partnerships with them. And they're here based in New York. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited. When did that whole process of looking for a full-time job start for you? Yeah. So, you know, when the pandemic struck i think my first gut reaction was just pour yourself into training and do not think about like how much this hurts and i saw some benefits immediately and i took the opportunity to do things that i had never really done in training before i bumped my mileage up i had scaled workouts up and i got into really good shape and that was you know the initial gut reaction which is like when something hurts go harder distance mm-hmm. runners know what I'm talking about for sure there. And so uh, slowly though, that started to wear off as it became clear that like the Olympic trials wasn't going to happen and that it wasn't going to happen anytime soon. And I, you know, my contract was going to be up at the end of the year and the last couple of years, I didn't really have anything super great up on the board that would say I was necessarily deserving of the same income that I was previously making. And so I started kind of compromising and thinking like, all right, let me get a job that allows me to keep running. And then that slowly shifted further and further away from including running. Was that weird for you to think about getting into something that had nothing to do with running? Or did it feel like the right direction to be going in and would help balance things out a bit? Yeah. So it it's funny. So first off, I was always mentally prepared for the fact that this day would come. I think a, maybe a lot of athletes think like, you know, they're living in the present so well that they never have to 
think about those years down the line where running professionally is not going to be an option anymore, but maybe it's just because of my classmates in college and my teammates there who haven't necessarily been doing this the last eight years since we graduated. And so I've always been surrounded by non-runners and still very Mm -hmm. close knit group of high school friends who none of them are runners. And so I've always been surrounded by non-runners. And so I knew that reality was going to exist. And I think, you know, my initial move was going to be working in something that didn't necessarily have anything to do with running and just having that balance in life where, you know, as part of that was, oh, well, if I'm sponsored by a company, it would be kind of weird to be working for another company. And then just the idea where it's like that balance in your life of you go to practice and then you go to the office and you don't think about what happened. I actually, that kind of made me think of what it was like in college. And I Mm -hmm. liked that idea. And so I don't know if you remember this, but everyone was getting laid off and every company in the world was doing a hiring freeze. And meanwhile, I was looking for a job. And so it became very, very difficult. I applied to 150 plus companies and company like good jobs and good companies. I wasn't just throwing my resume into like, you know, any old pile. Like I was definitely trying to get a good job and I didn't get anything. Like it was like, it was like I was throwing my resume into the abyss. And then I, as I slowly decided I was going to step away from running, I said, well, let's look in running. And that's kind of like the second part of the journey. Tell me a little bit more about that part of the journey. Yeah. So the thing, you know, I, I think people who know me and have maybe followed my career know that I'm probably, I would like to think still bringing some level of experience to the table. Like I've done a number of things in addition to just running the the last seven, eight years, but it was increasingly more difficult to convince those who didn't know my story that it was still valuable. And so even as I was like trying to get jobs at companies that were sort of related to running, it wasn't lining up with my expectations and Mm -hmm. things were falling through. And eventually, you know, a, a few heartbreakers occurred. And then I was like, you know what, like, I was only really looking at that because I was struggling to get a job outside of running initially. Maybe I should go back to those companies that were the first ones I was interested in. And I was one of the first companies that I had spoken with. I actually got connected through the USATF Foundation because you know they help athletes throughout their career, but also after their career. And American Express was one of the first companies I'd ever mentioned as being interested in working for. And luckily that conversation reopened and the opportunity existed. And I found a couple of people that believed in my skill set. And here we are getting ready to, you know, enter the real world. And so I'm excited for it. Let's dig into something you just talked about right there. And that is during your professional running career, during a professional running career, I want to look more broadly at this, how much assistance guidance is there for professional athletes to think about and plan out what their next steps could be once their competitive career is over? Yeah. You know, there's, there's definitely things that exist, but it's not being forced on you. 
And mm-hmm. I think the USATF Foundation is in athlete biz. Jack Wickens in particular was someone who I think has always been a resource for myself and other athletes. Uh, the AAC has some resources and, you know, USATF, there's a network that exists. Uh, the USOC, I actually worked with one of their career coaches there, Terrace Tiller and, like they are out there, but I think so many athletes are just so fully consumed by what we are doing day in and day out in terms of trying to be the best athlete that we can mm-hmm. be that you're not thinking, you know, oh, I have like an extra few months here. Maybe I should get an internship. Right. And I also imagine it's got to be really difficult when you are so focused on a solitary goal. And for most athletes in track, that's making an Olympic team or making national teams and being able to to keep this thing going you're almost like standing there kind of naked when you're done being like i don't even know where to go from here yeah exactly and that's i you know an interesting aspect of things is once you are on the other side i don't think people even really care about what you accomplished competitively like it's all sort of the same it it's mm-hmm. almost like once you tell someone you've broken four minutes in the mile, it doesn't matter if it's 359 or 330 to them, it's all the same. And so it was, you know, I think almost it said something about my character that I was a professional athlete, but then the question was like, well, what's your experience? And so I, in these interviews and I had endless networking calls, like the number of people that really wanted to help throughout the process was incredible, but it was almost like I was speaking way more about the Long Island Mile and my work with the New Jersey New York Track Club and the marketing there and the social media side of things and Primvito, which is the massage roller and gun that I created with a friend. And so like these experiences that lay external to the actual competitive running became the most important talking points. Let's hit pause right there and, and rewind to your college days. I mean, you were a hell of an athlete at Columbia. You went on and ran a grad year at Texas and then had this professional career. But at any point during your collegiate years, were you thinking about you know, what you would do beyond professional running whenever those days were going to end for you? Yeah, honestly, no. Um, I knew from the second I stepped foot onto Columbia's campus that I was going to become a professional athlete. And I don't think I ever looked beyond 2020. I think I had this idea like, oh, I'll just do something in the sport. And Mm -hmm. like what that is, I don't know, but it'll work itself out because you make the relationships and people get to know you and what you're capable of. And, you know, that will all pan out. Don't worry about that. And so, you know, even in college when I was selecting my major, which ended up being philosophy, it was fully driven from like a running perspective because I felt like that was a major that was writing heavy. And therefore I knew I could go to sleep as soon as I was done with my essay. I didn't have Mm -hmm. to stay up studying until the wee hours of the night because you could always study more. But you know, when a 10 page paper is done, a 10 page paper is done. So that really resonates with me because I also majored in philosophy at Stonehill College, which is division two. And I was nowhere near the athlete that, you were especially going into college um, and even coming out, I, you know, I was, I was better and I wanted to make it as a quote unquote pro athlete, but I had, I didn't have the the times to really do that. And, and my joke 
to myself and my my parents was that I majored in cross country and I minored in track. Um, yeah, because yeah. I knew that when I left Stonehill, I wanted to do something in running. My first priority was to see if I could do something as an athlete, and then figure it out beyond that, which fortunately I've, I've been able to do, but that also drove my decision to major in philosophy. One, I liked the writing aspect of it. I've never liked taking tests, but to your point, like when I was done writing at the end of the night, I could go to bed and call it good. Um, rather than just stay up and, you know, and, and keep studying. It's just, it's really fascinating to hear from a fellow philosophy major that you were yeah. thinking about things in, in much the same way. <laughs> And it's funny because I, I, you know, I don't dislike philosophy, but it's not like I've continued to read dissertations, uh, you know, as I've graduated. For me, though, the thing that I do, like, I think you probably feel the same way and like you get laughed at for being a philosophy major and you'll play along with it. But truthfully, it's like, no, my ability to research and construct an argument is significantly better than many people who were maybe econ majors and that's just because you had to learn how to do that and you had to adapt and the classmates that i was surrounded with in my major classes were so brilliant that it was kind of like you had to step up and get on their level or you were never going to survive and i don't think i fully ever got on their level but i definitely had to you know raise my own game I'd love to dig into the writing aspect of things a little bit more. You mentioned how you liked writing papers and you could be done with it and then move on with the rest of your day when you're in college. But I mean, over the years, you've done a lot of writing and, and storytelling. You recently started a newsletter called The Lap Count. I remember a few years ago, I can't remember exactly when you stopped writing in it, but you had a blog on, I think yeah. it was like yeah. um, I remember I remember reading that and enjoying following it. I think you were writing some articles for FlowTrack at you know, at one point um, on social media, which I, I'm not on personally anymore, but I followed your account. I really enjoyed just your 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 snarky writing on on Twitter, but also some of the longer captions that you were putting on Instagram. Like, when did when did writing become something that you knew you enjoyed, or was a or you you understood that it was a a form of expression for you? Yeah, you know, it's, I don't even think I actually enjoy writing as much as I enjoy conveying a message. And for me, that started in high school. There was a blog with Diestat that I did leading into the Milrose games. And, you know, at the time, everyone was really starved for any running content that existed out there. And that was a really popular medium and it gained a lot of traction. And ultimately, you know, I won the Milrose games and I felt like the ability to discuss the whole experience brought a lot of perspective to others, but also to myself and having to verbalize it. And then that just kind of carried over into other, you know, segments of my career. And as I would have what I consider a brilliant idea or I would learn a lesson or, you know, have a story. It, it, it's not like I liked sitting down and writing for a few hours, but I really enjoyed the ability to, you know, share what I considered learned wisdom that I was gaining in my experiences. And that that's always been kind of at the center of it. And so I, you know, there were definitely a number of freelance opportunities I had as a professional and 
now as I am moving on to the next phase of life, the newsletter, the lap count really just was born out of this idea that I wanted to continue to have a positive voice in the sport. And I didn't necessarily know the most effective way to do that, but I am a diehard reader of the morning brew, which is, you know, like a finance related newsletter. Mm -hmm. And I just find it so digestible and it covers so many topics. And it's almost like you give it to someone else to find all of the information and just spit it out in a spark notes version for you. And I wanted to do that for serious runners because not everyone is going to follow every single athlete on Twitter and Instagram and Strava. And so a lot of things that are going out there, a lot of good content might not be seen by people who are interested in seeing it. And so the idea is let me do all that work and then help build those athletes and those brands and those stories up, you know, with this new voice I have. So it's off to a good start. As of this conversation, you're three issues in. I just got the third one this morning. What's the response been like so far? Yeah, it's been pretty wild. I mean, I announced the newsletter and in 24 hours, I had, without having sent out a single newsletter, I had 1,500 subscribers. And I was like, you know, wow, that went way better than I thought. That's amazing. And then since then, I don't know like how public uh, you sh- you could tell me how public like newsletter numbers are, but like I have a few thousand subs now, and I just put out my third one, and the it's all been organic growth, and mm-hmm. people the reception's been really positive, which keeps me motivated to keep doing it, especially um, you know despite having a new job starting around the corner. No, that's amazing. I mean, I've been in this newsletter game for five and a half years now. And I did a similar thing when I started mine in late 2015. I sent out a tweet and said, hey, this is coming out next Tuesday. Sign up for it if you want. And I was working as an editor at Competitor Magazine, now Podium Runner at the time. And I got a couple hundred signups for the first, you know, for the first issue. And it's grown. And it's funny that you mentioned subscriber numbers, because I think a, a lot of people are hush hush about that. And I, I've been open about mine. Like now I've got over 11,000 subscribers and it's been wow. all organic growth and it's slow growth and there've been spikes and there've been periods where it's like leveled off. And then it's been periods where like I've, you know, I've, I've lost people and that's, you know, that's just part of it. Um, but I think in the newsletter space, especially in the running newsletter space, like people are interested in different things and you can subscribe to, to someone's newsletter whose point of view you're maybe you don't necessarily agree with, but you're at least interested in in hearing from. And I think that's what's unique about the medium is that you can kind of pick and choose like what you want to pay attention to. And everyone's got a different different area of, of interest, different like angle, different like tone of voice. And I think it's great. I mean, when I sent mine out, I, I didn't know of any other regular like running newsletters that were coming out on say like a weekly basis. And now there's like, I mean, there's, there's more than I can even keep track of. And I, and I think it really helps. I think they help each other out, even if they're, you know, even if you don't know that you are, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that kind of to your point is the voice is such an important element and you know, you're, you're in charge. I have one friend read it before I sent it out, but for the most part, you don't have to 
abide by anyone else's rules. It's free speech on there. And I think that gives you the opportunity to touch on subjects that are of interest to you personally. And if something's mm-hmm. really interesting and you want people to know about, like, there you go, there's your chance. Yeah. And you can go a little bit deeper, a lot deeper if you want, than you can on social media. And the nice thing about the newsletter, especially if you're putting it out on a consistent schedule, is people are less likely to miss it. Um, but people miss tweets and Instagram posts and that sort of thing like all the time. Yeah, exactly. And so hopefully, you know, the purpose of the lap count is to make sure people don't miss the best of. Um, but no, overall, it, it's been really fun. I've I've loved it. And like even just you know, it's a free newsletter, but I keep having brands reach out saying like, how can we support? Like, we like what you're doing. And part of the reason why I started the lap count was just to lift up those stories and hopefully bring a little bit more attention to the ones that deserve that attention from the general public and from the interested track fan. Let's look at things from your perspective as a recently retired professional athlete. Throughout your career as someone who was in the sport and someone who people were writing about and paying attention to, what did you see that was missing in the coverage aspect of things, whether it was through the endemic running outlets, podcasts, or even uh, websites and newspapers and whatnot outside of the running space? Yeah. So I see two things primarily that I see as an issue. And I do feel like I can finally talk about things way more openly now, especially that I don't plan on working primarily in the running space. You know, it's okay. You can piss people off a little bit more if your opinions do naturally do that. But two things, I think one, I think social media is incredible, but I think it's become too self-promoting. And Mm -hmm. so people aren't necessarily putting out original content and like demonstrating their personalities or sharing aspects of their lives. It's more just like, Hey, like check out this promotion or, Hey, I did this podcast or, you know, I won this race. And it's just, you know, the, the old Twitter was so much more organic and authentic and you really got to see the meat and potatoes of what makes someone someone. And I think that it's become overly curated. And in that process, we are losing touch with the people behind each account. How about beyond social media and just coverage of the sport in general? So I think then the coverage of the sport in issue is similar in a way where it almost feels like, you know, when you're watching TNT and then every commercial is just TNT promoting its upcoming shows. And I feel like there's the inability to, like, no one wants to acknowledge what other people are doing that is cool. So if FlowTrack is going to host a race, Runner Space won't cover it or vice mm-hmm. versa. And if, you know, if Sidious is doing something cool or they do a great interview or something like only Sidious is responsible for promoting it. And I think that you need more unbiased uh, media outlets that are, and that's part of, you know, the idea of the newsletter is like, if you're not trying to promote 
any particular brand, then you can promote every single brand and like a, a rising tide will lift all boats. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And that's a honestly a big reason why I started the morning shakeout because I was working for a media outlet in the space at competitor magazine. And I was limited in terms of what I could write about and cover. And there were some conflicts with advertisers and, you know, there were just some events we didn't pay attention to, but I could do that in my newsletter and I could link off to something that runner's world had put up or that flow track. Had put yeah. up. And there is, you know, it, it was never explicitly said to me, um, but it was definitely implied. And I know this is industry wide that, yeah, you don't promote a, a competing brand, right. Um, that is, that is going to take eyeballs away from, from our stuff. And, and to your point, what ends up happening is, some outlets will just pretend events didn't happen because they yeah. didn't broadcast it. And that's like, it's completely, you know, it's completely ridiculous. But I mean, I think by, I mean, that's the nice thing about a newsletter is if I see something that is intriguing or compelling or that I think people will be interested in reading or listening to, I can link off to it. Um, even though like I have my own things that I'll write about or my own podcast, but I mean, other people are doing great work as well. And I think the more we can expose them to it, the better off and the healthier the sport's going to be as a whole. Yeah. So, you know, I think that it's almost as if ESPN wouldn't cover an NBA basketball game that happened because it was on TNT. Exactly. And in my opinion, it's not choosing between where am I going to get my coverage? Am I going to go to Let's Run Flow Track? runner space Sidious. It's like, no, if I'm a diehard fan, I check all of them. All of them. Mm -hmm. And so let's make as many diehard fans as possible because everyone will benefit. Yeah. I think that, I think that's on the money. I want to pivot back to you and where you're at right now. You're about to start this new full-time job that's outside of running. What does your relationship with running the sport, the pursuit of it look like for you at this moment? Yeah, good question. I think at times I'm still trying to figure that out myself. I do run mostly every day still. The only reasons why I wouldn't go for a run is because I'm on the ski mountain or I'm doing like a two-hour bike ride. And aside from that, I'll make sure to still get a, a solid run in every day. Uh, the number of runs that I do over 10 miles now are limited because if I'm not training for a specific race, then you know, I think seven or eight miles kind of scratches that itch for me, mm -hmm. but I, it was very important. And maybe you feel similarly about your, you know, competitive running career. I want, I, I really wanted to leave the sport in good standing with it and have a good relationship and not be bitter or hate the act of going for a run. And on that front fully mission accomplished. Like I love going for runs every day still. Do you foresee yourself signing up for any races maybe later this year when they start popping up again or pursuing something like a marathon, which is complete opposite end of the spectrum from the 1500, which is what you focused on as a pro athlete? Yeah, I'd say I'm no interest whatsoever in returning to the track. Uh, those days are done mainly because I know that I'm not going to one up my previous personal best. And so why would I return now only to run slower? And I have definitely thrown the idea out there of doing a half or a full with the intent of qualifying for the 24 marathon trials. But 
as it stands today, like no part of me wants to begin that yet. And maybe once I get settled into routine, once I find the the right early morning training partner to hammer out 10 by mile with, maybe that will change. But right now I'm very happy to not be competing. You know, I've gone to some races this past spring or I guess winter to do some commentating and every time I'm there, I'm looking from the other side of the fence and thinking, I'm so glad I'm on this side. <laughs> What's it been like for you not being a part of a, a training group in around your friends and training partners every day, putting in the miles, hammering out track workouts and working toward things like the Olympic trials and the Olympics, big races, things like that. Yeah. It's weird. You know, it can get lonely at times. Uh, I mean, have you been running by yourself all these years or do you have a, a training group still? It's been a mix of the two, depending on on where I've been at, like literally geographically, um, yeah. but also in terms of what my work commitments look like. And certainly over the last year or so, it's been a lot more solo running. And I've been at this for 23 years myself. And even though I'm not trying to chase personal best anymore. I still have goals that I want to pursue, but it is a lot harder to get out there and grind out an interval session by yourself versus when you're meeting up with two or three of your buddies. So I try to be selective about when I meet up with people. Like I know if I'm going to do something really hard, um, I'd rather do it with other people because they'll keep me honest, they'll keep me accountable, and it's something I can look forward to. Whereas if I got to do it myself, I could I could easily pull the plug and not feel bad about it but i enjoy going out for just you know some easy miles in the woods by myself or a long run on my own but if i'm gonna if i'm gonna like put in some work i feel like i need people that are alongside me yeah so i I would say i've had obviously way more solo runs than i have at any point in the last 15 years and it's great and luckily you know I really like myself and therefore I'm not too bad of a training partner and we can still have some good conversations together, but I miss having teammates to hold myself accountable and to get me out the door. And, you know, fortunately I I still live in Westchester where former teammates live and, you know, I, I run with Johnny a ton and, generally like he'll run down to my house which is a couple miles pick me up and then he'll finish his run home because he'll need a little bit more uh than i do these days but you know we went for a run this morning and he picked me up he ran by my house and he's like how far are you looking to run i said i'll do whatever and he's just like i love that answer every single day it's just like whatever you want just drop me off when you're done with me i'll see on strava that you'll go to the track from time to time, maybe yeah. even spike up and throw down some 200s. Is it hard to let go of that? You know, it's funny. Um, I heard this once, I think it was a Brad Hudson quote or something where he says he really likes running at night mm-hmm. because your like perspective is skewed and you can't tell that you're not running as fast as you think you are. And so I've actually done some night workouts on a track and I feel like I'm flying. But yeah, I going to the track and just doing six two hundreds at, you know, a decent clip. You kind of just feel like your old self for half a second. It feels terrible, but you're like, all right, like you know, I forgot how much fun it is to run fast. And I think it's definitely sad knowing the amount of effort and how quickly it seems to have deteriorated this fitness that I once had. Um, you know, a 227 is now like an all out effort, whereas it used to be, uh, 
quite effortless. And so things are changing really quick, but it's good to stay in touch. I love it. And that really speaks to me because I'm almost 10 years older than you approaching 40. I ran the mile in college and I ran 409. I'm not going to come anywhere close to that. And recently I've been kind of training for the mile again and getting to the track and doing those types of workouts much slower than I did when I was, you know, at my, at my prime almost, you know, almost 20 years ago now, but a lot of the feelings are the same and the sensations are the same. And, and that's why I, I want to challenge something that you said earlier about like, yo, you're never going to go back to the tracking because you'll never run 335 or 352 in the mile. And you, and you probably won't. Um, but you're still young. I mean, 30 is still young. Give it, give it a few more years. You may get to a point where, you know, you're like, you know what, I just miss the feeling of going and ripping off some fast 200s and it stops becoming about the splits that you're hitting or, you know, what it is that you're trying to achieve, but it brings you like this level of familiarity and, and comfort that you just always remember, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Then that's kind of like the purity of it, right? Where that just hurting is fun. And yeah, I would say it's nice when it takes a lot more to make yourself hurt. It's, it's scary how easily I can get there now. Um, but no, I know that it'll come back. And I, I think a key rule that I sort of have is like, if I'm on a run by myself and I, I run by a track, then I like have to break five in the mile on it and then I'll go home. <laughs> I know it's still early days for you as you transition to this next phase of your life, but what do you think you're going to miss most about being a professional athlete? Yeah. Wow. Really good question. Um, the naps, uh, th- those were pretty nice. <laughs> no, um, you know, it's funny cause I never really considered myself that competitive of a person. You know, I think you have Michael Jordan on a ping pong table and you're seeing why he's, you know, amongst the best athletes of all time because of that competitive spirit. And that's just not me. Like I could be, uh, about to win a game of ping pong. And if you just decided you didn't want to play anymore, I'd be like, all right, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need that satisfaction. And so it's not really that element of it. It's more just the every single day. And this isn't necessarily, this still exists outside of professional running. And so maybe this idea will resonate with listeners, but every single day for the last 15 years of my life, I had a goal and I was able to tangibly work towards it day in and day out. And all of my decisions were guided by the idea that I want to achieve this goal. And there's not many other things that are happening in the world or in my life where that exists. I, I have goals like in relationships. I know I'll have goals in my new work life and you know, long-term bucket list things that I want to cross off, but not necessarily things that every single day I'm seeing that input and output to the amount of effort that I'm giving towards it. And I think that's just really unique to track and field and running. I don't think that even basketball players have that same experience. Mm -hmm. You recently started the lap count. You mentioned your work in the broadcast booth, which I want to dig into a little bit here in a bit. As you transition to your new professional role, do you 
want to maintain a connection to the sport and still have a presence in it? And if so, why? Yeah, I think that being a runner is so much at the foundation of my core that I can't imagine myself ever fully stepping away. I think in the immediate, it's very easy because I still have so many friends who are obviously Mm -hmm. still doing it and still involved. And so right now those opportunities to continue doing it or not, or just being involved in some way in the community are very easy. And I don't know what that will look like in 10, 15, 20 years from now, but maybe I'll uh, have to become an official or something to still make sure that I'm at the track once a week. But I, I definitely am hoping to just because it's a sport that gave me so much. And uh, now instead of it being my profession, it's a hobby, which I think is part of the reason to kind of my point earlier, why I wanted to do something outside of the sport for work is I want it to be a hobby. Like I, what a great hobby. And I think a lot of times, you know, you'll, you'll get questions and interviews and people are like, so what are your you know hobbies and interests? And I'm always like, uh, like books. And like, I can't think of anything because like my biggest hobby has been running for so long that mm-hmm. it's almost like ingrained in me that I don't even identify it that way anymore. Do you ever look at someone like Nick Willis, who you've competed against for years is now working a full-time job, but still trying to compete at I'm so impressed by a high level. Yeah. 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 Do you ever look at him and say like, man, maybe, you know, even though I don't have a professional shoe contract, anymore that's something that i could do yeah um i think so it's funny because i felt like nick was starting to take a a real step back from competing and then once he got hooked up with this gig at tracksmith it seemed like that opportunity represented itself to continue competing and Mm -hmm. and breathe some new life into it willis is a 349 329 guy so the baseline of his fitness is really tremendous and therefore his ability to continue doing it into the point of his career that he's doing right now is remarkable. But I think that you do just have to really, really love competing. And I remember at one point this summer, it was actually a moment that I knew that I was going to like definitely retire. I was at a race outside Boston and warming up i just didn't want to be there i knew i was going to drop out i ended up dropping out despite feeling fine i just i knew that was going to be it for me but then afterwards i'm watching molly huddle hauling herself to like a 5k in a field where there's you know no one of her caliber and no fans there and I'm watching her and I remember having the thought of like, how is she still able to push herself so hard in this scenario as an athlete who has competed at the absolute highest level countless times? And, you know, a part of me is jealous that she could find it in her to still be doing that after all these years, you know, and Olympic and world champs and marathons and everything. And that just wasn't going to be in it for me. That's pretty incredible self-awareness on your part to be able to realize that, yep, I don't have that and it's time for me to move on as painful as a moment that must have been, I imagine. 
Yeah, but you know, it's funny because it wasn't actually painful. It was almost like a weight was lifted from my shoulders. Like I didn't have to keep pretending that I wanted to do it anymore because mm-hmm. the, the last year it was almost like I was doing it out of an obligation. And, right. you know, I had signed up for a commitment both, you know, obviously with sponsors, but also and team and coaches. But, you know, with myself, I always said I was going to do it until 2020. But I didn't necessarily want to do it anymore. And then finally in that moment, it was like, I don't have to do it anymore. I'm good. Do you think a lot of professional runners struggle that same sort of thing, like when to step away? Yeah, because I think for a lot of us, the next thing may not be as clearly defined. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, if you knew like, hey, I'm done, Uh, I've been competing, but I've also been in medical school and or, you know, I'm ready to become a lawyer and like that next path was obvious, then it would be a lot easier. But for a lot of us, it's kind of like we step out into the real world and we're like, here we are. Like I have like weird credentials and nothing specific to show for it. And now what? And I'm sure for a lot of athletes, that's an intimidating thing to have to go through. I know it was for me, um, but uh, it had to be done at some point, and I felt like I was finally ready to do it. You've recently been in the broadcast booth for a couple of the meets that have happened. What's that been like for you, and is it something you want to continue playing around with? Yeah, it's funny because I would say I never at any point said, I want to be a broadcaster. I think that just a couple opportunities presented itself and naturally i was like yeah that seems fun because it i wanted to be you know at the track hanging out watching the races myself and i also felt some level of like almost a moral obligation to do it because i know what's going on and could probably speak to the athlete experience better than a lot of other potential broadcasters and therefore you know I, I think I'm okay at it. I, I, I've seen some of the endorsements from Twitter users and you know some other very kind people who have said like completely hyperbolic things about my ability to discuss the races. I don't necessarily think I'm anything special. I just I think it's like Tony Romo can step off the field and tell you you know what the quarterback is thinking and that's sort of where I'm at right now. Yeah, but you you do a great job at it because most I mean most broadcasters can't provide that type of perspective because they've never been in it. I mean there are a few that that can and certainly do. I think Kerry Tolson does an incredible job at that. I mean when Shalane Flanagan's been on some of the marathon broadcasts, I mean the perspective that she brings to the booth is very unique to to her, much like you're doing in in these types of situations. And as a as a fan of the sport, as a self admitted like super super nerd, it was refreshing to actually like listen to to someone who you know isn't that far away from it, knows the athletes, knows what's on the table, and can convey that to a larger audience. Yeah, and you know, I think I was 
very fortunate to be in the the couple of times that I've done it recently. And I'd done it at NCAA cross country and I did the USATF marathon champs before, but you know, in particular, these last two track meets, very lucky to be with a very well-produced meet. And that makes my job a lot easier. But I think the YouTube audience is so you know, dialed in already to the sport that you can speak to people who understand the niche nature of what is happening. And therefore you don't have to say, Hey, you know, like this is a mile, it's four laps long. If you're confused what that is, like go to your local high school track and you don't have to play that game because you're not trying to bring in new fans. Like you're only exclusively speaking to fellow diehards. Do we need to bring in new fans or should we be trying to service the fellow diehards in a better way. Yeah, I'm of the idea that we should stop trying to bring in new fans as much as we should be trying to keep those fans that are already here. And I don't mean, you know, you and I, like we're good. We're we're going to be here. I'm thinking more of like the the kids who are running in high school or the mm-hmm. the athletes who are competing in NCAA and then go on to different things in life that isn't necessarily professional running, but then won't stick around and go to a track meet and won't turn it on TV. And it's like, where are we, where's that disconnect happening? We all, we have the potential fan base there. It's the most highly participated sport in the country on the high school level. Yet no one seems to care what's happening on the highest level of the sport outside of every four years. What's exciting you most in the sport right now? I think that there is very good momentum for the grassroots stuff. And I think that a lot of people are realizing that if you want to see change, that you can just do it. And if, you know, there's, if there's the opportunity to have a track meet and one doesn't necessarily exist right now, that's how I started the Long Island Mile. I was, it was always the idea that, you know, everyone comes back from Europe and there's no track meets on the domestic series. And I wanted to do one more mile before calling it a season that was on the track. And so we built it. And I think that's happening across all aspects of the sport where people are seeing like, Hey, you know, um, there's, there's a few in particular, like the running report. I don't know if you're familiar with like the two black runners Mm -hmm. podcast, but like, those guys are doing awesome stuff and they, they almost have like an ESPN style first take show that they do. And it's just like, yeah, you know, it'd be cool if this existed and they decided to start it themselves. And now they're putting out awesome content. Like, and, uh, Ben Crawford started a new generation track field magazine. Cause he's like, yeah, I wanted a specific magazine to speak to the culture that I'm a part of. And it's not necessarily there right now. And so he started it and, People are putting out sound running and the professional track series and the trials of miles guys. And there's just the number of sponsors that are stepping up. I think that there's this whole idea where people thought that the barrier to entry was much higher than it truly is in order to support mm-hmm. athletes. And it's like a thousand, two thousand dollars to sponsor a race is probably a lot less than I think people realized. And if you have 10 of those at a track meet, all of a sudden you're supporting a really quality 
live stream production that can go out to the masses for free and even put up prize money for athletes along the way. And like, that's going to create more eyeballs. And I think that people are just getting more and more involved. On the flip side, what's making you cringe about the sport? What's making me cringe? Um, I honestly, nothing, I don't really hate anything in particular. Um, I would say at points, I feel like we didn't fully capitalize on the pandemic. Um, I think naturally the way that the runner, the running community kind of skews very left and we treated it very, with a lot of caution, but I would say that now that more and more, like I wish that we would have done something NBA bubble like is basically what it comes down to. Like I, I mm-hmm. wish we would have seized the moment a little bit more, and rather than sitting back and just saying like, "All right, there's no racing at all," and I think that there was a lot of judgment on those who were racing early on. Um, I wish that we would have maybe just responded a little bit differently and just locked ten athletes and a camera in a bubble and just said, all right, you guys are going to race each other a few times. Do you worry at all about the long-term vitality of the sport at the professional level as brands and other stakeholders invest their money in other places besides races and athletes and more towards, you know, other personalities in the sport and things that don't necessarily have anything to do with the competitive aspect of it. Yeah. So I think that every time I do see a new company enter the sport, I think it's so good for everyone. It's very healthy. You know, Puma has stepped up and is supporting a training group and supporting athletes and on has stepped up. And I've heard that Diodora is going to enter the game really soon. And so like bringing in this new money is great because it requires then the pillars of the sponsorship world to respond and step up. And it also says that there must still be some value in it if people are continuing to enter that market. But I do, as you know, I I have some level of worry that like the influencers may take over and, but I'm also confident that the shoe companies will respond and that the athletes will respond. If you see that a YouTuber with a ton of subscribers is taking the money that you feel like you deserve because you're a 352 miler, then it's like, all right, well, then it's time that you make a YouTube channel. And you're seeing a ton of athletes starting to do that. And I think it falls on the athlete's shoulders to do that because there's so much tape, like red tape to get through in order for a shoe company to put out that sort of content. Like, have you watched Morgan McDonald stuff by chance? Mm-hmm. It's brilliant, right? Like it's, I agree. Yep. It's really funny, super goofy. He's an unbelievable Engaging. runner. Yeah. So I think, but imagine if like Under Armour had to okay every single thing that he posted, or if you got camera crews involved with that, like every episode would be four months production. Along these lines or going a little further down this road, <laughs> what 
is the job description for a professional athlete these days? Or maybe a better question for someone like you who just got out of the sport and was in it at a professional level for, I think, eight years or so. How has the job description of a professional athlete changed? Yeah, I think that depends on the employer. I think that you have the Nikes of the world who say, we just want you to win medals and do whatever you can to run fast and represent us well on the global stage. And then you have other companies that really value the things that you're doing off the track. And the incentives are in place in the contract. And I think that those are going to continue to evolve and be clearer of what those expectations are. But I do think that you should hopefully get to the point where the the responsibility is not just to run fast, but to help promote even better. Getting back to your point earlier that bother me or cause me to cringe in the sport right now, is there anything that you see that if you could fix that you would? Yeah, a couple things. I mean, I think USA Track and Field as an organization needs to figure out what it wants to be. And I I think it struggled with its identity for, for quite a while now. I mean, it's the it's the governing body of the sport in this country and it's responsible for, you know, selecting our Olympic team and supporting elite athletes on some level, but it's also got all this other stuff like under its umbrella from like mountain ultra trail, race walking, like local clubs, youth programs. I mean, you know, you name it, it's just, it's kind of a mess. And I think that just needs to kind of be blown up and it'd be to the sports benefit if there, if it, if it were just focused, I think on the Olympic athletes and putting athletes on on national teams and creating some kind of like coherent program or system that made more sense uh and created more more opportunities for those athletes and and that was its its sole focus and you know everything else is under a different organization or or a different umbrella i mean i i think it's you know held the growth of the sport back in this country. And I'd be curious to sort of get your take on that as well. Yeah, I I understand the, that opinion, but I do think it's important to note that a huge portion of the funding comes from the other side of things. And I think having all those members of USATF kind of under the same umbrella is potentially really powerful. And I think that rather than allowing them to separate and be another entity, I think, how can we better get them to engage and care about what the Olympic movement and those athletes are doing? And, uh, you know, I'd seen tons of people and, you know, myself included, will complain about everything always being behind a paywall. And I don't want to dig too deep into it, because I do think that there is a time and a place for the paywall. And but I also think that there needs to be free track and field at times. And I do think it's viable on you know, the professional level to create those situations. But I saw someone suggest that you know, like, if all of the USATF meets are going to be shown on runner space, then let's give all USATF members a runner space membership. And you know, maybe that costs everyone an extra couple bucks when they sign up at the beginning of each year. But those are people that we don't want to isolate. Like we want to bring, if you're 
interested in the sport of track and field enough to become a USATF member, then like, let's make sure that you're also watching the races and make that as easy as possible. That makes too much sense, Kyle. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's potential there that it happens at some point, but, um, there's definitely a chicken or egg problem at times of, you know, there's not enough eyeballs. So the sponsors aren't interested and therefore you have to do the paywall or is there a paywall? And that's why there's not enough eyeballs and that's why the sponsors aren't interested. And it's just, it can go round and round. Yeah. Well, back to what we were saying earlier about the coverage of the sport and media outlets and, and individuals like just focusing on, on their thing and pretending that some of these other events didn't happen. I feel like there's got to be a way to package a lot of these things together, even though there are different outlets that are, are broadcasting them and they all have their own individual objectives and, and goals. But I mean, if they are interested in serving the the fan base that supports the sport and keeps it going and creating those opportunities like there's there's got to be some way to make it easier to watch track and field and competitive running events because it really is all over the place right now and a lot of people just don't know where to look and you know then to to the point you just made i mean there becomes this problem of like well do i put my money here or do i put my money there and yeah. and i think that's just the the sport can't get out of its own way in in that regard it's almost like we need uh, a rockefeller to come in and like monopolize the whole thing like where capitalism's killing us right now because the the consumer does require like you have to put money in obviously like cable and flow track and runner space and peacock and you know these various outlets if you want to watch everything and it's tough enough because athletes don't always share where they're racing to follow mm-hmm. what's happening, but it becomes even more difficult when the races are all over the place. Yeah. And, and then compounding that the coverage of it's all over the place um, in terms of like the actual event itself. And then after the fact, like the people who are, are giving it attention is, is all over the place. So I think it just, it ends up creating like all of these, all of these silos. And it, and I think because of that, it becomes hard to, to really like be a fan of the sports. It's kind of a frustrating experience. Yeah. And that's why those who have it figured out are generally, as we're saying, diehards, because Mm -hmm. that's the sort of effort that it requires if you're going to be all in. And that's part of the reason why it's so easy to digest the Olympic cycle every four years. And the the question is always what do you do to keep their attention beyond and i don't have the perfect answer i just think at times it's worth trying something different because what's happening right now isn't necessarily working for everyone in your opinion in the sport is there too much of an emphasis on the olympics from the athletes themselves to as a non-olympian that- <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. To the brands that sponsor the athletes, to the coverage that it gets, as you just mentioned, it's like every four years, yeah, media outlets outside of running will pay attention to what's happening. But beyond that, unless it's like a major marathon or something, it's not getting any attention. Yeah. I think that if, and if, if you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it, but it's called Players by Matt Futterback. And he talks about. Futterman, sorry. Uh, 
And he discusses basically like how sports became what sports are today and how the money entered the the picture in such a large way. And I think that modeling, and again, it's not an original idea, but seeing what happened in tennis and in golf and the creation of majors and making it very easy to understand what is the most important things is important and will create, I think, to your point earlier, like almost sponsorship packages. Like if you're trying to bring on a sponsor for a single event, it's a little difficult to say like, yeah, and you get like, here's our gold package and you get all of this and here's the silver package and you get all this. It's a lot easier when you say like, these are the seven meets we're trying to sell you and you as a corporate sponsor will get X, Y, and Z at each. Like you're, you're creating a more enticing potential platform for a brand and, you know, even with the newsletter, you know, I had the Harrier come on as a sponsor and this week. And it's, uh, you know, it's a lifestyle streetwear track inspired company. And I was like, do you want to do, uh, I was like, yeah, like, that'd be great. I'd love to like sign you up for a week. And the guy who's behind it said, I want to do three weeks because I want to be able to like change the messaging, see what's working, like be a reoccurring figure where like you get more attention. And I think that that's the mindset that we need to bring in all aspects of the sport. Like if you just see a company pop up once, they're kind of in and out of your head real quickly and it doesn't necessarily bring the most value to you. Whereas if consumers of the sport are constantly hammered by a company like time and time again, then that has a lasting effect and will convert to sales and have a higher return on investment. Yeah, that consistency is definitely key. Pivoting a bit, I'm curious to get your thoughts on all of the crazy fast times that we've been seeing on the track over the past year plus. Yeah. Um, What's going on? Yeah, so... I guess um, I, I think my two takeaways, it's like it's impossible to pretend that the shoes aren't doing anything, but I'm also just completely okay with the shoes doing something. Like I think that the people who are most upset about the, the difference of like the shoe technology and the increase in unbelievable performances are probably those like myself who just retired and are very jealous that I never, you know, I, who knows how fast I would have run if I had those spikes and you're playing those games and some level of animosity is stemmed out of that. But I think that this forces us instead to look at things within a time period and value them based off of what was going on at the time. So, you know, Joshua Cheptegei breaking the the world record doesn't make Bekele any worse of a runner. He still won his gold medals and broke his world records, but I think a part of us get very defensive about our heroes whose names are etched into history, and if someone were to beat them, that takes away from their legacy. Last question. The... Olympics are scheduled to happen this summer in Tokyo. Be the first time in what two Olympic cycles that you're not working toward them. How's that 
been for you and what do you think the next few months will be like? Yeah. Um, I, I'm okay with it. I'm, you know, it's not like I was at either of the last couple Olympics, so that part will be easier. I think the Olympic trials will maybe be, uh, difficult when the 1500 is going uh, and, you know, watching that and thinking, should I have stayed in and tried to make one last run at it? But hopefully, you know, I am enjoying my, my new role in the next part of my life enough that I'm not looking back. And I do feel like I got to go out on my own terms and I'm healthy and still able to enjoy running and focus on that aspect and the positives there. And instead it's let's root for my friends and former teammates to hopefully prove that what we've been doing these last number of years, uh, there was something to it that we were doing right. I love it. Well, this was a different type of conversation than I typically have for the podcast. We really didn't get much into, you know, your career or your life or your relationship. with. I know. How did we not talk about gags? I know. Um, we might have to set aside a whole nother episode for that. So I've had, God, at this point, I mean, just the degrees of separation of some of the guests that I've had on who are, who are, you know, connected to gags in, in some ways, I mean, could be a series unto itself. Uh, and I, I hope that it is someday. Um, but hopefully we solved a few of the sports problems here over the past hour, 15, hour 20 that we've been talking. And I want to thank you for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. This was good fun. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for sponsoring this episode. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of running. They recently released their spring collection full of stylish gear perfected for the pursuit of personal excellence. It's designed for running hard and logging miles as the season shifts. Right now, Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. Use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out at tracksmith.com. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. They're also super affordable, with most pairs costing just $25 to $35 bucks a piece. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And yes, those are just a couple of the recklessly fun names that they have in their collection. So if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of Gooders, head over to Gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout to take advantage of a great deal. 13% off your order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 13% off your order. Look good, run Gooder. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. 
Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.